Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Laura. Hi, Julia. How are we doing? How's your week gone? Really well. The massive report that I talked to you about last week has been filed. It's been done, so that's a massive relief. I just don't know how you do it. That report's longer than my dissertation I did at uni, so I'm in awe. Yeah, actually, it's been a really interesting one to write. It's about the uh, the circular economy after COVID. Um, so it's an interesting subject, which always makes things much, much easier. Um, actually, sometimes I really like having pieces that are a bit longer than your usual sort of journalistic feature. It gives you an opportunity to really go into depth. Um, but yeah, they, they are quite uh, big pieces of work. So yeah, it's nice to have that all done and dusted. How's your week been? Oh yeah, good week, thank you. I'm excited about chatting to you today because it's nice. Some weeks we have a guest and some weeks it's just me and you and it's really nice when it's uh, me and you to get a bit more into the detail of some of our articles. So uh, looking forward to chatting with you today. Yeah, absolutely. I love having our guests on. We had a, a great guest last week um, in, in Richard giving us that international perspective from the US. But uh, it's really nice to have a sort of, you know, a, a bit of a change every week as well, having guests one week and then uh, having an opportunity for us to catch up as well. And super excited to say we've got a sponsor again this week. Yes, this week we have Shopper Intelligence as our sponsor. Shopper Intelligence is the first and only syndicated measurement program built from the direct voice of food and drink shoppers. With unique storewide metrics in dozens of categories, giving you why and how shoppers buy, not just what they buy. If you'd like more information, just go to shopperintelligence.com and the link is in the show notes. Great. Shall we get started? Let's go. All right. So my first pick this week is from the Financial Times. It's an article by Judith Evans titled Coronavirus, UK Farmers Face Brutal Test Ahead of Brexit. And the question it raises in essence is this. Has the coronavirus outbreak created an opportunity for UK farmers to argue for self-sufficiency and the protection of UK food standards in a way that perhaps wasn't possible before? because we've all just experienced major disruption to our global food system and it's perhaps going to make us want to have our food produced a little closer to home in the future. Or is the pandemic going to have the opposite effect and make that argument a whole lot more difficult, particularly in light of Brexit? The headline kind of gives the game away um, in the sense that it's talking about a brutal test for UK farmers. And that's very much the message I took from this piece as well. And I really like this article, partly because it quoted lots of interesting people. We have Minute Batters from the NFU in there, Henry Dimbleby, Professor David Hughes and so on. But I think it also just does a really nice job of explaining what the issues are and why food standards are such um, a flashpoint for farmers at the moment. We talked about this with Richard last week. 
we've talked about it on previous episodes, that whole debate around, you know, when we strike trade deals with countries like the US, what are the terms on which we will allow those countries to sell feed to us? Are we going to insist on the same standards, particularly the same animal welfare standards that we expect our farmers to adhere to? Or are we going to be happy to accept different standards? I mean, that's really where the whole hormone-treated beef, chlorinated chicken debate is is, uh, coming in. And there's obviously big concern on the farmer side that if you allow different standards um, at this moment in time, that you end up putting farmers in a position where they have to compete against producers that are producing to completely different standards, and that is going to make their lives incredibly difficult particularly in light of what's happened with coronavirus. This was a a difficult debate, a difficult issue already. Throwing a pandemic into the mix certainly hasn't made things any easier. And I don't know what you made of it, but that's kind of the message I took from the article as well. It ends on quite a positive note. There's one of the farmers saying, well, perhaps this will be a fork in the road and hopefully the country will, you know, appreciate the high quality quality food that we're producing because they've just been through this um, this food crisis. Um, and maybe it's going to make arguments in, in favour of, of sort of higher self-sufficiency and support for British farmers easier. And I really hope he's right. I think it's really important for us to support our, um, our our domestic farmers, our British farmers. But I think it's going to be really, really tough to win this argument in in the current climate. Yeah. What did you think? Did you do you think coronavirus has made it easier or harder for for British producers to push for more self sufficiency? It's a great question, and I think. Um... The article is fantastic at setting out all the points, particularly um, the, the different bits and pieces I do for work. I'm bombarded with all of the, those sort of elements on a daily basis. To, so to see it in a single article in, in that way, I, I found really helpful and it, it gave me a new level of objectivity. I, I think coronavirus has uh, potentially given domestic per- production a new platform to speak and to show what, why it's so valuable. And maybe without that, we'd be in a slightly different position now um, uh, leading up to, to Brexit. So uh, there was a couple of things within the article that, that really hammered home to me. One, Minette being mentioned several times, and that was great. And I, I, I'm a, I have to admit, I'm a massive fan of hers because she's done an amazing job under so much pressure at the NFU and, you know, trying to lead a, a membership organisation with so many different views and so many different sectors is always tough. And her trying to get on the front foot and be a face to consumers in a measured way is never easy. And I, I really think she, she's really helped crack that. But when I read it and I reflect on it and I think where our retail market is, I, I, I think consumers my personal view is still expect British at retail and we'll still um, expect those long-term relationships with our retail base to, to sell British. I think where this can potentially play, as we know, is in food service, where the country of origin labelling is very different, you know, non-existent pretty much on beef. And um, I think that's where there's, there's a huge opportunity for more uh, differentiated differentiated product to come into that market 
I, I personally don't see a huge swing, at least in the short term. And by short term, I mean next three to five years uh, in retail. But definitely, you know, as we know, food service can, can change really quickly. And, and the, the sort of final thing that I thought of looking at the article, and it talks about, you know, other countries have got cooperatives and have got that longer term relationship in their supply chain. Unfortunately for us, and it's the same the world over, but others have managed to crack it. We've got such a trader mentality, particularly in the, the, the meat industry, that both throughout the supply chain and we haven't got that integration that we could maybe have. And I think we need to continue to look towards that integration and working from processes to producers. So right and then through to retail and food service. So that chain is locked down. So it's harder for people to switch when imported product comes in of a lower standard potentially and then I said that was my last point but I've got another one uh, <laughs> um, something that isn't mentioned in the article and something I, I'm passionate about is is, is um, meat quality so and by quality what consumers perceive to be quality and you know uh, you go to the states and you very rarely say oh no, I had a rubbish steak and that's probably because you know you, you may be eating somewhere that has got great selection of the, the product that they're supplying and you know everywhere has good and good and bad products but what they do have is a quality scheme that arguably we don't currently have in the UK and the the Australians are great at that as well so if we really put in the consumer at the center of everything we do rather than production we need to be delivering what they want and that's something that's consistent and delivers again and again and we can't rest on our levels there. So I think it's going to be challenging. And I think our market's going to look very, very, very different in the next 12 months. And it's quite frightening as well, I think, for the industry that we're working. Totally. And it actually, it really reminded me of something that came up in this report that I've been working on, which is largely looking at um, the opportunity for a green recovery um, after after the virus or in the, in the wake of the virus. And one thing that, that came up over and over again from people was, that yes, this is an opportunity to reset and to do things better and to build back better. But at the same time, we can't take that for granted. This is, it's also a moment of peril. So if we want that better future, if we want to build a better food system, it's not just going to happen. It's, there is going to be a fight involved in convincing others, convincing government, convincing policymakers of the need to go in that direction. And I think it's a similar situation here where, yes, there is an opportunity. And I think people's relationship to food is changing. And I think we are valuing food potentially slightly differently in the wake yeah. of this this pandemic. Whether that's a permanent change or not, I think is a different matter. Um, but yeah, that just because there is an opportunity or there's a potential platform doesn't mean that it's in the bag. There's a massive fight on our hands. And I think, I mean, organizations like like the NFU, I think, realise that they've been very good at building a wider coalition with, you know, wider range of organisations to really push for that. But yeah, it's, um, it's a tough fight that I think that sector is facing. And the article yeah, explains really well, just exactly what uh, issues are at stake. What's your first pick this week? Um, my first pick uh, is from the grocer. And I was a bit spoiled this week with the grocer, because as you know, my pet 
project is a CEO interview and there was two CEO type level interviews in the growth this week. So I didn't know which one to pick. So but I went for the the big interview with um, Julie Ashfield. And this is Julie Ashfield, MD of buying at Aldi uh, on how Aldi stayed calm amid coronavirus crisis. The reason I picked this article is I, I think Julie's got quite a low profile, actually. And to be honest, the whole Aldi um, management team that do the you know that they're a very slick team as is the whole Aldi operation and and don't really do that many interviews at all compared to some of the other retailers so I was probably surprised to see see her um in here which was great uh and you know the the, the surname links quite nicely with Ashfield Farms at Aldi and uh, you know a whole range in there which I, I think is interesting in itself anyway um, I think maybe the, the trigger for the interview is this is the seventh year running that uh, Aldi has topped the grocery code adjudicator lead table. So I think that this was a, an entry into the interview, but it gave a really good uh, platform to, to understand a little bit more about the business and a little bit more about her. She joined Aldi as a graduate area manager in 1999 and has worked her way up the ranks. And I always really like those stories of someone that's come from the bottom up and has, you know, and we've seen it quite a lot with the various CEOs that have, have learned from, from the uh, from the shop floor and taken that expertise to the C-suite, which is great to see. Some of the, the, the key things that she's pulled out, which uh, I would love to mention is, first of all, that the strong relationship Aldi have with their supply base. And I think sometimes you sit, think, uh, you know, do Aldi have that real transactional relationship with their supply base? But um, very much the opposite. And they uh, look at transparency, honesty and trust with their supply base, which has allowed them to be number one on that grocery code adjudicator for, for so long. Um, the other thing that, that then goes on to is obviously COVID and the fact that Aldi have an average of 2,000 SKUs in their stores as opposed to 20,000 in a, a Tesco or a JS. And that really led to them not having to consolidate their range very much when COVID hit. Um, Julie says in the article that she only had to consolidate a couple of, uh, of, of products and that was probably on, on pack size more than anything else. And efficiency is a real, real advantage that, that Aldi have. And one of the examples that she pulled out, which I absolutely love when I go into an Aldi, is the fact that the um, store colleagues are trained to work on everything. And you see this, they're trained to you know, uh, uh, unpack a pallet, stack shelves, customer service, work on the checkout. And if they're working on a checkout, they're incentivized to get so much product through that checkout, probably double the, 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 than a, a normal supermarket. Um, and that's something that seems so simple, but just that flexibility allows them to, to move at pace. Uh, and then she also talks about the pricing and the fact that, as we've seen, so many products have come off deal uh, and the uh, offers have, have significantly reduced over the last two months. But Aldi's uh, pricing has remained static. They have their uh, Super 6 uh, or Super Buys for uh, for Fresh uh, and that stayed. But, but everything else, um, the, the pricing remains exactly the same. And there was also a really interesting point in there about MPD and the fact that some MPD did uh, stop for a little bit, but um, even Christmas planning uh, continued which I, I thought was really insightful that you know there's someone somewhere uh, in their West Midlands HQ that's still thinking about uh, Christmas puddings when all of this is kicking off so so fair play to them 
Um, one of the things that they have in the pipeline is um, expansion uh, naturally, but uh, one of the things is um, Aldi Local and doubling their London estate um, in the, the next 12 months is still uh, keen for them. Uh, and I guess part of that is driven by food to go, which has been hit in light of COVID, but they're still very much keen to do it. We've spoken previously, and I think I picked one of the the articles about Aldi going online and the fact that you know they have no real online footprint and and the partnership trial with Deliveroo and and that's still in early days and they're not wanting to commit to anything until they can find those efficiencies. But the Nielsen stats in the article were really interesting. It was first time in a decade the last twelve weeks have shown a higher growth for um, JS and Tesco than it did for Aldi. So. Yeah, I, I like the article. I like the fact that it gave a bit of a personal insight to someone that we never really hear much about, but is a massive mover and shaker for our industry uh, and a little bit of insight about what they're doing for the business and, and how they deal that dealt with COVID. What, what did you reckon to it? And is she on your radar? She is on my radar, but I agree. I think it's not someone who gets profiled a lot. Um, so I'm I'm always really pleased to see um, interviews with people that we don't normally uh, get to hear from, especially when it's sort of senior women in grocery as well. I think that's always um, fantastic to see. And and the the interview is is a really good interview. She comes across uh, very well. Um, at, like you, I thought there was some really interesting detail about how they approach their, their supplier relationships, of course, given the angle of the article. Um, I think their COVID response has been interesting. And the point you raise about online will be very, very interesting to watch because that was an obvious gap in their game, you know, going into a crisis like um, like COVID. I mean, it's been the same for, for, for Lidl as well. I think that's just not been something um, that's been part of their model because obviously, you know, margins of profitability in online grocery is incredibly challenging. And if you are a discounter, um, that might not be a natural fit for your, for your model. Um, so I think what they do with that partnership around Deliveroo, the kind of stuff they're going to be learning from that, what sort of appetite they find there is for online grocery shopping from their customer base. All of that will be really, really interesting to watch because they've obviously been cautious around going into online. They've been, you know, doing little bits here and there, stuff around special buys, stuff around things like coffee pods that you can buy, uh, wine as well. But um, yeah, you, you do wonder whether it's going to give them the impetus to now fully go into launching an online grocery offering or whether actually it's going to have the opposite effect and it's going to tell them that yes there's obviously lots of growth to be had in that um, at the moment but it's not the right fit for their business model so what's your second article my second pick for this week is from Wired um, and it's an article by Alex Christian called here's how pubs can finally reopen now, we have talked a lot in recent episodes about how social distancing um, is affecting pubs and restaurants and why those social distancing rules have been so challenging. Now that we're gearing up to reopen the hospitality sector next month, uh, we're increasingly starting to see articles that don't just talk about the challenges, but also about potential solutions. Um, and, and this one is a particularly interesting example, I thought. So there are a few potential solutions the article discusses, but it really sort of centers around um, more of a restaurant style experience. So booking ahead, having table service potentially. Um, and so instead of just going to the pub spontaneously, whenever you fancy it, you have to you know, book ahead. You're given a specific time slot. 
so that the pubs can manage numbers and capacity and keep everyone nicely separated and also tell you to leave once you've used your lot at snot of time potentially that'll be an interesting one to manage I think in reality um and technology um, and apps in particular are going to play a big role here and that's really what the article is focusing on there are already several app providers that are developing or have developed solutions specifically for the pub sector or the hospitality sector. A la carte is one of them. They offer a white labeled app so pub owners can put their own branding on it and then customers can use the app to pre-order their pub slot. In some cases, even pre-order drinks so you don't even have people milling around by the bar. Um, and some of the big pub chains already have developed their own apps as well. I think they mentioned Weatherspoons and Green King in the article. So that, I think, sounds like quite a promising solution for some pubs. And the emphasis really is on some. It's not going to work for everyone or indeed everywhere. And the article makes a really good point, which is about Wi-Fi connectivity. That's going to be a massive issue if you are... Um, in a in a rural environment, you might just not be able to get that kind of connectivity that's going to allow you to offer these sorts of services. And then some of your customers, you know, particularly older customers, may not be tech savvy. So what's going to happen to them? And then the other point they raise is that you have some pub buildings that are simply not going to be able to accommodate things like one directional flows and any kind of social distancing, no matter how hard you try, you know, some of the really charming buildings with nooks and crannies and, you know, we're sort of squeezing past other customers is all part of the experience. No app, no technology is going to, to solve that problem for you. So it remains a really, really tough time for pubs and for that sector. But hopefully for some of them, uh, those technology solutions, those apps can be a starting point and can allow them to reopen and start making some money again in some form. And the article really sort of reminded me of, of a different piece actually written by um, a former colleague of mine at The Grocer, uh, Megan Tatum, who's now freelance um, and she's written a piece for The Guardian. Um, Megan moved to Malaysia about a year ago so she's got a really interesting experience or perspective at the moment because um, restaurants in Malaysia have already reopened they were one of the first countries to allow restaurants to reopen so the piece she's written for The Guardian is really sort of her first person account of what it was like eating out again and she talks about having her temperature taken before she's allowed into the restaurant. She has to give her name and address, which are then kept in a database for 30 days in case, you know, anyone tests positive and they have to track and trace people. Um, and so what she says is, yes, it's really nice to be allowed out again and to go to a restaurant. But it's just not the same. The atmosphere is just not the same. Um, it's a very, very different experience. But she also said, and I think this is a is a really important point, that yes, even though the, the atmosphere, the experience might not be the same, it's going to be so important for us as customers to still keep going to those restaurants, to those pubs, because if we don't support them, especially some of the, the independent businesses, they're just not going to be around. How would you feel about using an app to pre-order 
some drinks that would really put pressure on me I have to say I'm quite indecisive I used to, I, I usually decide on the spot so that, that would be an Gin issue for me that's all right done <laughs> next question uh, so, um, yeah so that'll be all right I'll be all right ordering the drinks Do you know what I would find a hassle in that and that's when I read the article I thought, oh god that's a hassle everyone having all different apps as you say you know Green King having a different app Weatherspoon mm. White Label on all these apps and I'd be thinking right well we're going to the Dog and Duck have you downloaded the Dog and Duck app have you downloaded this app so you know is there an opportunity for something like Open Table or a, a consolidator to be able to harness all of that rather than I think that's what will put a lot of people off thinking all right well I haven't got that and as you say when you're in the back of a pub trying to get a wi-fi signal to download said app you know and it gets all hassly or if you can get in in the first place without of making that booking so yeah it, it feels like a hassle factor and another barrier so you think oh well why should I bother um and then you're totally right and Megan's article was fantastic about um atmosphere and it's all about atmospherics yes it's about the food and the food needs to be good and uh, but it's it's about the service it's about the space it's about the company it's about the banter it's about all of that when you when you you go out and and the food and drink is only a, a proportion of it and without that yeah it's going to be hard to maintain the 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 level of, of footfall um it was really interesting I was watching breakfast telly yesterday and um there was an interview with a, a couple of nightclub type folks from um both the Algarve and and Ibiza uh, and they were saying you know yeah all of our wait um waitresses and waiters are going to have masks on when they bring drinks and food and all the rest of it and the question was asked well what happens when everyone's had a load of drink what's going to happen then because naturally you know people want to dance and get closer and all, all the rest of it and said oh well, you know, security will come over and say, make sure you, you stay two metres apart. And you think that that in reality and same in, in a pub, you know, you get chatting, it's social, that atmospheric is gone and then it feels sterile. Absolutely. And actually, it's interesting. So my my family um, or most of my family lives in Stuttgart in southern Germany, and they've just started to be allowed back out um, and go to restaurants Um the population in general, not just my family, I should say, and um, and they um, they went out uh, last week to a restaurant. And what my dad said was, you know, obviously, yes, absolutely, all those points about atmosphere. It's really weird. If anyone had asked you to do this sort of thing, where you know they also had to pre-book and they had to give their address and every like the waiting staff is all wearing masks and it's all a little bit weird. Um, but because we've not been able to go out for so long. It kind of, I think they still had a good time. So I think it's one of those things where if you look at the impact it has on on atmosphere and isolation, you would just say, well, this is obviously ludicrous and no one wants to have a, an experience like that. But if you've just been through, I don't know, eight, nine weeks or however long of not being able to go out at all, then suddenly that's perhaps a minor inconvenience. That was definitely the, the impression I got from them. Now, I have to say they went to a restaurant and I think restaurants with the whole sort of food experience, I think are going to have a slightly easier time than the ones that are very much just about socialising, you know, your nightclubs, your your pubs primarily. Um, but um, yeah, I think they, they sort of, they ended up having a, a good time, even though on paper it sounds like a really, really weird experience. 
it's a good point really and you just you know you, you're ready for it and you, you you know if you told someone in January would you sit in your car for two hours to get a McDonald's uh you'd say no I'm all right thanks but that's what everyone's been doing this week haven't they so actually yeah you, you're ready for it and you and you, you want to experience the things that you experienced before even if it's a little bit different totally yeah. what's your next pick so you know when you want a Kit Kat but you don't want to go to the supermarket you know what you need to do now just deliveroo so this is an article from food bev media and this is nestle launches a snack delivery service with deliveroo and um it's all the drive towards direct to customer and really interesting that the this is growing and growing and, and 11 sites uh, for deliveroo are are trialing this uh, nestle um a, a trial with their products so they're saying you know Back in the day, you could be sat at work and you'd want to go and get a Kit Kat from the local convenience store on your lunch break. But they're seeing that market obviously drop off a cliff because everyone's working from home. So they are now selling a huge proportion of their products, trialling through um, these 11 delivery sites, which is really interesting. Uh, And it comes off the back of news last week of PepsiCo Craft doing a very similar thing uh, and uh, doing uh, direct customer sales and setting up two different websites, including snacks.com so you can order all your your favorite snacks to home and Kellogg's as well doing a, a similar piece of work uh, last year again via Deliveroo some of these big FMCG brands that have relied so heavily on uh, physical retail they are looking to in some small way obviously to, to begin with buy buy um pass some of that and go directly to customer but to be able to buy a, a two-finger Kit Kat from Deliver, who I just thought was really fascinating, and 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 to trial that when you know such, such small margins, but it's possible. Would, would you uh, add a Kit Kat onto your delivery order? Possibly, and I think it's it's the adding on that's the it's key the adding bit on, here, isn't it? It is. It's not yeah. just the Kit Kat. Exactly, and I, I and I I think actually what's really interesting here is how some of the big FMCG giant, FMCG giants are sort of interpreting that direct to consumer opportunity differently. So with the PepsiCo model, where you've got Snacks.com and I think is it Pantry something that yes. they set up, the other one. From my sense, having looked at this, is that that's very much driven by bundles. So you as a consumer can put together a bundle of, I don't know, your favourite snack items or some kind of bundle of breakfast items. And of course, PepsiCo has a large enough portfolio that you actually end up having, you you know, quite a lot of categories and you can put together probably quite a decent bundle. And if you're getting people to buy a bundle, some of the costs around delivery probably start making sense. Whereas if you just ask them to buy, you know, a can of Pepsi, that's not going to work. I think that's when you need to have your add-on and your, you know, your additional KitKat. I think it's interesting that Nestle see the opportunity in going with a partner like Deliveroo um, rather than trying to do this themselves. They obviously have a lot of experience in direct-to-consumer. They're arguably one of the direct-to-consumer pioneers with the whole Nespresso model. Um, but that's very different margins. You know, that's a product that people would be seeking out specifically and where they're quite happy to accept um, possibly delivery charges, but also that the inconvenience, if you will, of having to order something through a separate website. You're not going to get that for impulse purchases like a single Kit Kat. I think your best chance is to 
as they've done, partner with a, a, a you know a, a company like Delivery that's got that customer relationship already, where someone's already buying food and then going, hang on, what's in the delivery essentials range that they've launched? Oh well, I might as well you know add some tea bags and and a couple of Kit Kats. Um, you know, in all of this, it's also always about delivery, isn't it? They are just in every interesting partnership in their space keep, at the moment. keep coming back every single week, don't they? Absolutely. And um, tell me, what's your last article? So my third article this week is from Sifted. The article I picked is an opinion article written by Cheng Yi Lin, who is Professor of Strategy at INSEAD, which is a business school. Um, and the article is called European Retailers Are Falling Behind in the New Normal. What he's talking about in particular, that they're falling behind on, is e-commerce operations. And his piece is arguing that in the US and in China, retailers have been doing much better in the crisis because they had invested more in their supply chains and in warehousing in particular. One of the points he makes is that we've been seeing lots of emergency fixes as retailers had to respond in record time to surging online demand. So he describes those fixes as a classic case of digital front-end interface with human back-end support. It's a slightly complicated way of saying, you know, things like in-store picking, where the customer interaction is through an app or through digital, but then there is a human being that has to actually go around the island and pick, um, pick the products in order to fulfil that order. His argument is that um, those emergency fixes have a really big implication, not just on the efficiency, but the overall customer experience you're getting. And in essence, they're not showcasing online at its best, he says. His concern is that what we've been seeing is um, lots of people being forced to try e-commerce online for the first time. And their first experience ends up being a little bit meh. And so they're probably not going to do it again. Um, whereas in China, he says in particular, where the infrastructure was already there, where investment was already high in that kind of infrastructure, retailers were able to keep customer experience much higher. The moral of the story, he says, is essentially a word of warning. You know, we've seen lots of people talk about how this is a tipping point for online. We've had so many more people trying online for the first time. This is going to transform the grocery landscape or retail landscape. He says, well, hmm, maybe not, because unless that shift is then followed up by some really great customer experience, but also the right level of investment, the right kind of changes to the business model to actually make the most of that opportunity, people are going to find those offerings not particularly compelling. And once they're no longer forced to shop online because of the lockdown, they're just going to go back to shopping in store as they as they used to. What did you make of it? Yeah, I thought it was a great article. I really enjoyed it. Also, um, the comment in the article, and I, I like the phrase, making it stick. You know, how how can we make some of this uh, last for, for, for a longer time? And as you say, just, just default back because that's what we did before. And I think when we're thinking of the likes of, you know, benchmarking with Alibaba and the rest, you know, that, that that's huge. And they've been um, working on that model for so long. But it makes me think as well of some of these smaller retailers. And, you know, the, these are small high street retailers that probably didn't have any e-commerce platform 
in January or really any inclination to have all of a sudden in quite a rustic way some of them but great switched it on and managed to supply food to their local communities and for them how do they learn from this and manage to make some of it stick because there's a danger for some of these shops and you know the independent channels that I think the latest Kantar data was saying they're about 66% up aren't they huge growth how do they manage to hang on to some of that without it all just slipping back into into multiple retail and and show you know that that, that great experience or that differentiation they've had rather than yeah, people just putting up with well it doesn't really matter I just want to feed my family and just manage to, to serve me so I think there's lessons for big retail and small retail in there too. He talks about retail in general I, I wonder what this would look like if we look purely on a at an online grocery um, sort of angle um, and of course we're sort of talking about European retailers including the UK more generally again I, I'd be interested in seeing some benchmarking of how the UK fares against some of its European counterparts. Mm-hmm. I, I think there are, I think it would probably be a slightly more flattering picture, um, I think, yeah. for some of the, the UK retailers. What's your final article for this week? So my final article is uh, from the BBC and it's vegan seafood, the next plant-based meat trend, question mark. So this is something that's been written by Christine Rowe um, on the 3rd of June. And this is seafood is difficult to vegan uh, veganize well, but some companies are betting on the new technologies and customers to overcome the challenges. So this is something that I've been watching for a little while, um, and it points out some of the issues that why it's it's taking quite a long time to come online. It's uh, difficult to replicate flaky, fragile seafood, and that means that shelves uh, shelf stable mock tuna has been easy to produce than fillets. And the majority of plant based seafood retail uh, sales are frozen um and it also says people typically turn to conventional seafood for the health benefits so it's also been uh, hard to come uh, close to imitating these benefits are extremely important for plant-based seafood so this is what really brought me to the, the the question in my head when i got two pages into this article i thought seafood um is you know has a lot of uh, of health benefits and that's one of the reasons people are eating it as well as um obviously enjoying it um but if they can't imitate the health benefits fully for a plant-based version, then why would you want to eat something that imitated at seafood? Why wouldn't you just want to eat plants? Um, that's what <laughs> first question. So hold that thought because I'm going to ask you that in a minute. Uh, but then, <laughs> then it went on to talk about um, uh, people don't necessarily have that same connection with seafood. Maybe with lobsters and crabs a touch, but not so much as you know um, red meat. You know pigs and cows that they have more of a, a human affinity to that might drive them to more be like to be a vegetarian or a vegan. But one uh, really interesting point it makes, which I'd never have thought of, is it's uh, shellfish allergies and how that how that's so common uh, in many countries, and that's actually creating more space for. Um, imitation shellfish and I thought yeah that that's actually uh, something that if you were eating out and having that on a platter then an alternative uh, might be a good idea and then some of the final stats which I'm not quite sure I agree with and again question see what you think it's saying that some 23% of um, surveyed US consumers say they've been eating more plant-based meals due to COVID-19 and that really um, books against some of the data that we've seen and particularly the, the conversations that we've had, including with Richard last week about the growth of meat and the, the you know, the Cantal figures for, for the last month for the UK. I know 
not US, are showing a, 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 a still a double digit increase for, for beef in particular. So I, I, I'm not picking up a huge amount of, of plant based growth plateau, but, but in light of COVID, what, what are you seeing and what do you think about um, plant based sea fish? I'm a bit confused by it. <laughs> I, I think I think it's a really interesting sector and there's clearly lots of potential. Um, I thought the point about shellfish allergies um, was really interesting as well. Uh, we talk a lot about, you know, people switching to alternatives because of health reasons and environmental reasons and animal welfare reasons or, you know, things like that. Um, I, I hadn't really thought about the, the allergy angle. And so that I think that was a, a really interesting point that was raised there. I think as far as sort of some of the growth figures is concerned, uh, are concerned, you know, a lot of that comes down to having a relatively small base. So I think it can both be true that you are seeing really impressive growth figures in some of those alternative sectors, and you are also still only seeing quite a minor shift around what's actually happening with seafood sales or meat sales or, or whatever it might be. Um, there's clearly a lot of interest in it and it's I think a sector that is going to continue to grow but you know we're talking about something that's starting from a very small base so you know it'd be I, I don't think I would expect it to have a, a sort of massive impact yet in terms of total sales what it does do though it's clearly capturing the imagination on some level you know those alternative um, stories or stories about alternatives whether it's meat alternatives dairy alternatives or now, seafood alternatives, they're great stories. They often have really interesting startups and interesting tech and interesting founders. So just from a kind of journalistic point of view, um, I would, you know, if I were a sort of a, in, in the meat sector or the seafood sector or dairy, that would actually be the thing I'd be more concerned about. It's not the total sales at this stage. You obviously want to be keeping a, an eye on that, but just about the sort of you know, how good a job those companies are doing in getting cut through and getting their stories told. Um, so I think that there's some lessons to be learned, um, to be learned there. Of course, the big growth in all of these alternative sectors is not coming from people who are already vegan or vegetarian. It's coming from, you know, that sort of so-called flexitarian consumer, i.e. people who are perfectly happy eating seafood, who are perfectly happy eating meat, um, but they want to cut back. And so if they do want to cut back, then something like this is a really convenient alternative. And I think your point earlier about why wouldn't you just eat some vegetables? I think it's precisely because of that. Um, <laughs> because that's, you know, if you want to, if you want to have a burger um, and you want to maybe cut back on your meat consumption or you want to have some fish and chips or whatever it might be, and you want to, you're concerned about your fish consumption, then eating some vegetables is not going to be a, a decent enough alternative for that um and i think even for for vegans and vegetarians you know i i i think that idea that you can just tell people they should be eating lots of vegetables um and that they shouldn't be craving some of the kind of you know food experiences that are so such a big part of our, our culture um i think that's that's almost quite an outdated view of veganism and vegetarianism of course people want to have burgers as well and of course they want to have junk food and of course they want to have things that maybe allow them to have you know the, the sorts of dishes that, that that are everywhere and that are really important um to our culture so yeah i don't think just expecting them to eat vegetables kind you of hits the spot. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think I may be calling your attitudes to <laughs> I think you might be. I mean, you're right. I think what I guess my point that I didn't make particularly well there is I think that it's fine if the product tastes great, but to expect people, the vegans or vegetarians or, or, or not, it doesn't doesn't matter, to eat a, a plant-based alternative to seafood that, that's like rubber is short-sighted and it needs to taste great and imitate that flakiness and the flavor profiles of the actual product itself totally why, and i think yeah the, why don't you eat vegetables <laughs> and, and i think the point about texture is so important i mean that's been i think one of the reasons why in the meat alternative sector everything is sort of minced yes. or that's you know it's all been kind of here's a burger here's yeah. you know because that's obviously quite a forgiving texture when you're talking about actually getting um, something that approaches steak-like texture. Pork in particular, I think, is it, I understand, is quite a challenge yes. as well. Um, so that's that's so much harder to get right. I think there's some companies that do quite interesting things around 3D printing yeah. in combination with plant-based ingredients because you can sort of control the texture a little bit more. But I think there's still loads of work to be done outside of products like mince burgers, tuna flakes, you know, where, yeah, it's the, the texture is just a little bit more forgiving than if you actually create something that, you know, should feel like a, a piece of meat or a piece of fish. Love talking to you as ever. And uh, look too. forward to catching up next week with a guest as well. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. Bye. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the feed industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.